Good morning. It is great to be here with you and to be with those of you in the prayer garden and those with you in Collingswood this morning. Uh, as many of you know, um, my name is Pastor Ben, and I got back on sabbatical a month ago. And it is a real treat to be back with you all. And again, a couple things I just felt extremely grateful for this morning. One is to be a part of a church that would give that privilege of sending my family and I on sabbatical, as you did with Mike last year, and the rhythm of that and the gift, undeserved gift of that, uh, was for our family. We thank you for that. I also just this morning am struck here in Mount Laurel, as I often am in Collingswood, of the place of prayer that is in the worship. And that when we come together, we don't come together to just learn, to just read, to just speak to one another. We come together to interact with God. And the amount of prayer that is in the worship service in both places brings me great joy this morning. We went to Columbia over our sabbatical um, for seven weeks over there. We went there with a two-month-year-old. And uh, a, a lot of trusting God is just like saying, okay. And we went over there with a the two-month-year-old trying to say, okay, God, we don't know what this is going to be like. My wife told me before we left, she's like, I'm not worried about anybody medically in our family except for you, because something always seems to happen to you, to which I treasured in my heart all kinds of resentful thoughts like, no, nah, it's going to happen. I'm trying to know this thing. Well, we had a wonderful time down there. We had an incredible time with Adriana's family, meeting them, her birth family, and uh, have stacked in a lot of incredible stories, have seen a lot of miracles um, that happened there. At the end of the trip, it got a little exciting. Uh, some of you may know that I had an uh, emergency surgery uh, two days before leaving, and it what happened was I started with the, the stomach pain, right? And some of you know where the surgery goes already here. It's appendicitis, not bury the lead. But what happened is I, I had this stomach pain, and, and the day before, we had some friends who were from Chicago. They flew out, and they have a nine-year-old who the day before had some stomach pain. And so she was like laying down in the, the little house where we were and just kind of took a day off. So when I started having stomach pain the next day, all of us thought I had what Clover had. Clover is the nine-year-old. And as we went out to dinner and, and they said, you know, how are you feeling? Oh, all that kind of thing. And, and I, love, I love being asked about how I'm feeling about as much as my dad loves being asked about his back. Not much, right? <laughs> so I come from a, a medically dismissive roots and I carry those on as well. So I am feeling worse and worse, and everyone's like, wow, yeah, man, you and Clover, you and Clover. And as things began to like get even more emergency-ish, I'm just thinking, how tough is Clover, right? <laughs> I am, I'm dying here, right? I'm, and I can't complain so much because 24 hours earlier, the nine-year-old had it, and guess what? She seemed fine. Turns out what I had was worse than what Clover had. <laughs> but we actually went, this is true, during this time, because I'm like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. We go to the city, and when we're in the city, uh, my wife and Clover, as so happens, are getting their nails done. 
And then I am outside wandering around the car, absolutely dying. And I'm kneeling on the ground, laying on the ground, little fetal position mixed in, all kinds of things are going on. The security guy comes up. He speaks as much English as I speak Spanish. Not much. He's asking me, are you okay, in various ways, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, various things. He uses the word, you want to go to the infirmary. I don't know what an infirmary is, but the answer to that question for me is always no. So. <laughs> Don't go to the infirmary, eventually we go back. At this point, I am in more pain than I can pretend to dismiss. And by two in the morning, I ended up driving back down the mountain from where we were staying and getting the surgery. It was, this was Saturday, and then we eventually, our plane tickets were Monday, and that was my big concern. Are you gonna let me on the plane? Are you gonna let me fly? And so I'm looking up online, and it says, five to seven days after having an appendectomy. And I'm like, oh, I hope they have different rules in Colombia. <laughs> they have different rules in Colombia. <laughs> so I got out of the hospital on Sunday, we flew back on Monday and we're in the security line and all of a sudden I feel something like I pulled a stitch. And you're thinking, oh man, is something bad gonna happen to him? That's not what I'm thinking at all. All I'm thinking is, are we not gonna get on this plane? Right? I've got plane tickets for six of us that I don't want to repurchase. So I'm just thinking, if I bleed out, I just have to disguise it somehow. Because <laughs> I'm in the security line. So I'm literally thinking what I can kind of put in front of me because I don't know if I'm going to bleed. I don't care if I die on that plane. We are getting on that airplane. So we didn't bleed out. We made it home. Uh, but it, we had an amazing time and very grateful for God's protection. I'm very disappointed that my wife again was right. It was me <laughs> who needed the surgery. We're going to pick up today in the book of Acts. Um, we are in Acts 23. Paul has gone on three missionary journeys, and now he finds himself back in Jerusalem, and he's having a heck of a time because people are angry with him. We've got different factions of people who are fighting over him. Interestingly enough, Almost all of them don't like each other, but they also don't like him. So they have a common enemy in Paul and in one another, and it's this whole tumultuous scene as a collision of worldviews are hitting in Jerusalem. I'm going to start in verse 11 and then go from there. This is after Paul has already faced uh, tremendous persecution and almost death. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister, that's a nephew for those you keep wrecking, record, heard of this ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say. 
The tribune took him by the hand and going inside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for they have bound themselves by an oath to neither eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one you have informed me of these things. Then he called two centurions, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, which is an amazing name, by the way. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man... I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked, what province was he from? And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we ask you for your help. As we enter this text and this story, I know it feels like a lot to read all those verses. We pray that you might guide us and direct us. We remember the scripture of Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. My prayer simply this morning is through the life and story of Paul that you might show us how to do that. You might let trust not be a vague concept out there somewhere but you might help us better understand how to do that for our lives, how to approach the fall that way, how to live the daily difficult and good things with a daily practical trust. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start the sermon, the start the the conversation about Acts 23 uh, with a proverb. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans of the person's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. If there was a thesis statement to put on Acts 23, it is Proverbs 19.21. Proverbs 19.21 gives us language of what happens in Acts 23. There are the plans or plots of the humans, of the person's heart, and then there are the Lord's purposes which ultimately prevail. We're going to look at a, a differences, and if you have your little uh, sermon note thing, you'll see a grid, and we're going to look at what's the difference between the plots of the human heart and what's the difference between trusting in the plans 
and the plans of God. Plots and plans. Plots we're going to define as this, which we see in our text. Well-intended, everyday, or long-term plans that are made and carried out without the help of God. Now, we see that we think well-intended, everyday, long-term plans made without the help um, and carried out without the help of God. And we say, we, we don't want to live that way. We, we don't want to live a, guy, a life that Pastor Mark calls as functionally atheistic of, yes, I might trust him. Yes, I might even know him in a theoretical sense. But, but to live my life with everyday plans that are without him, we don't want to live that way. If you're anything like me, when it comes to planning your life, you don't want to live without the help of God. But it is often how we end up living. It is often how we end up setting our goals. It is often how we determine what we do in each step of the way. We can tend to live as functionally atheistic and just operating on our own plans as opposed to knowing how to trust in the promises of God. Promises we're going to call this biblical and personal promises that God gives to his people that always require walking in difficult and delightful trust. If you have spent time walking in trust with God, you know that it is not partially difficult and partially delightful. It is most of the time deeply both of those things. Not slightly, but deeply both of those things. How do we live in the promises of God? And, and how do we know? How do we know, is this my idea or God's idea? This seems like a good one. I'm, I'm planning this for this fall or I'm planning this for the future. Or I'm, I'm thinking this for a possible marriage. I'm thinking this for, for possible um, setting up education or job thing. How do we know, is this my own plot or is this God's plan? So this morning we're looking at Acts 23, asking the question, how do we practically lead a life that is based not on our own plots and plans, but according to the promises and direction of God. First thing, you see this in your chart, if you want to put this in, the 1A spot. The, when you look at the plots of man, what we see here in this text is the product is what matters. Right, We have in verse 14 that these, this group of people, this 40-plus group of people, went to the chief priests and elders. They went to the people in charge. They were not hiding this from, from the people who were in charge of the law. They were going and saying, this is what we are doing according to what we think we should do. So they go to the chief priests and to the elders, the very ones that would hold them to the oath that they were making. We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath not to taste any food or drink any drink until we have killed this man. They are passionately zealous about wanting spiritual things. They, they are passionate in their approach to this. They are dedicated, willing to risk their life for the sake of killing Paul. And, and they can't accomplish what they think they should accomplish by the ordinary means. 
In verses 6 through 9 that we looked at last week, we see the legal, some of the legal proceedings by which the people were trying to convict Paul. The very thing that Claudius Lysias, again, awesome name, writes the letter to Felix, and he's writing this letter saying, hey, I looked at what was going on. It didn't seem enough to put him to death or to keep him in jail. And so that's in his letter. That's found out in the 6 through 9 passage. So they can't get him in prison to, to keep him quiet by the normal means of conviction. So, so then there's almost a public riot. Verse 10 says that the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. It's this violent, this charged of an event that's happening. So he actually puts Paul in prison to keep him safe because the plot of, um, or the, the legal proceedings were not enough to convict him. The public riot was not enough to kill him. So now they plan to murder him themselves. What is interesting is what they're going to do is violate their own law. They're going to violate their own virtues that deep inside the law is not only do not murder, it is not the right process of someone being imprisoned or put to death to then go and just murder them, them yourself. This is not the right process according to the law that they are passionate about defending. If you would bring them one by one, the 40 plus people in, or you brought in the chief priests or the elders who all got behind this plot and said, hey, what do you think about just taking the law into our own hands and uh, violating the commandment, do not murder, and violating the commandment, uh, do not lie. Because in the text, they go, and the, the part of it is deception. Elders and chief priests are going to go say, hey, we need to question him some more. And on the way, he's going to be killed. They are using the classic, the ends justify the means. In their mind, in their passionate minds, they see that Paul must die. This threat must be gone. And towards that end, everything else doesn't matter. We just have to get to the ends, justify the means. There's a podcast that many of you have uh, heard uh, about the rise and fall of Mars Hill by Mike Cosper. And, uh, and Mike Cosper looks and evaluates uh, the danger of living as a church community or as a, a person of faith in a way that the ends justify the means. And one of the episodes of the podcast, he talks about Bobby Knight. Anybody know Bobby Knight, right? Bobby Knight is the, the chair guy, the punch the, one of his players guy. He's an Indiana basketball coach who was incredibly effective at winning games and incredibly destructive in the way that he would do that. But there was all of this controversy because Indiana University wanted to win a lot of basketball games. But the way that Bobby Knight did it was he would put chains on the doors during practices, chains and locks, no one was allowed in. He would uh, be screaming, berating his players, uh, eventually would punch one of his players, kick a chair. He was angry, angry man. But he won a lot of basketball games. And so it left the university of what to do. Um, and uh, in the podcast, Mike Cosper talks about a book by Feinstein. He says this, Feinstein remind, recalls the moment that encapsulate the calculus, the one that Knight made. It's what justified the culture of fear, the bullying, the unhinged brashness. 
after the Indiana-Illinois game during which Bob kicked and slammed a chair, kicked a cheerleader's megaphone, Dave Kindred, a superb columnist for the Atlantic Constitution, wrote that he was disappointed to see Knight acting in this way. Kindred, a longtime friend of Knight's, ended the column by writing, Once again I find myself wondering, when it comes to Bob Knight, if the ends justify the means. A few days later, Knight called Kindred. You need one more line for that column, Knight said. You should have finished by saying, and one more time, I realized that it does. When our good goals become our idols, we will justify just about anything to serve them. The plots of the human heart, the product is what matters. But what we see in Paul is trusting and relying on the promises of God. It is the process that matters. In verse 11, sets up this whole text. Actually, verse 11 sets up the rest of the book of Acts. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify in Rome. This, this little nugget, this little passage right here, this transition is, is given in transition between different stories in the text. But what God is saying is, hey, as you have done it here in Jerusalem, you're going to do it again in Rome. And, and the primary command, the, the, the imperative of the text is not, Paul, go to Rome by any means possible. It's not, Paul, I want you to get out of here, escape by night. Here's where we're going to do the, 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 the exact, uh, here are the exact details of the plan to get you to Rome. He's saying, Paul, your job, take courage and be willing to testify about the facts that you know about me and I will get you to Rome What's the promise in the text? The promise is that God is going to deliver him to Rome. This is, I think we have a map that we can show. Rome is very, very far from Jerusalem. It is further than Bismarck, North Dakota is from right here. Okay? If we think about traveling to Bismarck, North Dakota, by means of the way Paul did, he did a lot by sea. Can't do that to Bismarck. Um, Sorry to disappoint. But this is where Paul would have to go from Jerusalem. In this text, he ends up in Caesarea. And then in the following chapters, we have this promise fulfilled where he will go. He gets shipwrecked in there somewhere over here by Malta. I think there's some snake action that happens there. Then eventually he's going to get back all the way to Rome. Why? Because God promised that Paul was going to Rome. But while, while, while the the pra- pragmatic approach to saying, oh, I, we, we see a goal and we want to get it there and we see, we see what we want to have and we're going to go after it. He's deeply human. I love what God does with Paul. He doesn't clarify the timeline. He doesn't tell him this is the, this is the step-by-step process. He says, you take courage. You trust in me and I'll get you to Rome. Living a life of trust doesn't include a clarified timeline. It's not a linear plan that's laid out. We're often not given the script before the beginning of the show. A life of trust 
involves keeping our hands open. One thing that uh, on sabbatical that God let me do, um, I, I'm going to say is I, a lot of things God doesn't let me do. I don't, a lot of times I'm an idea guy and I'll come to the Lord and be like, Lord, I just think this could be so awesome. What do you think? Most often the Lord's like, no, or wait. And then I'll have another great idea. And then somehow he doesn't always fall for my great ideas, but I, I'm working on him. I'm working on him. But, and when, when I hear no from the Lord, I don't take it like, you are so wise, you know what's best for me, right? I take it like a toddler, like, but I really want to. <laughs> this last year I turned 40 and I, I, um, I'm one of those nerds that like really wants to, I'm a, I'm a goal setter. Like, okay, by 40, these are my four words I'm going to go by in the next ten, 10 years of my life and all that kind of stuff, trying to figure out what was the Lord. And one of the things that I wanted to be a part of my life was to begin writing. And I turned 40 waiting for the beautiful Shakespearean inspiration <laughs> to come, where all of a sudden I would just start beautiful writing. And I, throughout the next months, I wrestled with it. And the Lord asked me, and he told me no. And actually, he told me no enough times that I, got, I have a note on my phone where I'm like, things the Lord asked me to lose this year. There was nine, and I wanted all of them. And he asked me to live a life of accepting loss, accepting no. And by his grace, I had to say, okay. Because when I am just product-oriented, I'm going to blow through things and hurt people and, and miss and neglect. But I have to trust the God of process. And I, and I say that because finally, finally, and that's exactly how I felt um, while we were on sabbatical uh, in Colombia, the Lord said, hey, why don't you start writing? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so there's still eight things that I felt like the Lord caused me to lose. Um, but I was able to finish a book while I was on sabbatical. And that's uh, been an incredible faith-building process for me to remember Following God is not just about setting goals it's not, or about forcing our way to them. It is the process of living a life of trust. Secondly, plots. Plots are self-sufficient. What we see in, this, in these 40 individuals that they were, are going to try to kill Paul, that go to the chiefs and elders who buy into this plan, is not based upon deep prayer. They did not pull open the Torah and try to look through, is this, is this something that would be a wise decision or not? It is an impulsive decision, not based upon prayer or thoughtful reflection. And what's interesting is there is zero faith required to pull this off. Their success or failure is based upon the quality of the details and the execution of the leaders. So often, that's how we evaluate our thinking about our lives, Right? Going to the fall, okay, let's get the details right and let's make sure the person in charge of getting it done gets it done the right way. Is the goal realistic? Is the goal uh, possible? Can we achieve this? It's easy to set those goals and it's easy to hold ourselves accountable to, to finding and fulfilling those goals. But I would argue that a life built upon trust is not built upon self-sufficiency 
There's a haunting thing I heard as a pastor about a guy who planted a couple churches. And after he planted a couple churches, he went on to really meet Christ in a powerful way. And he looked back and he said, I planted both of those churches without the help of Jesus. The churches were pretty successful. That's scary to me. Why? Because we humans, are, we're pretty interesting and neat people. We have the image of God and we, are, we have that creativity. We've got the ability to write and accomplish goals. But it is easy for people who believe deeply in God to set up their life in a way that's based upon their own talent and capacity. It's easy in this information age, right? We've got so much information to to trust in that next article that we read, to to get out our our cell phones and say, what's the, 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 the latest piece of data that will unlock the cheat code of parenting or wealth or relationships or happiness? How do we get, what do we do? How do we shape? And our scripture stays dusty. Our prayer is bland, Because we really think that next bit of information will lead us to our own sufficiency to conquering as opposed to a life of trust. Plots say that I know what needs to be done and I've come up with the resources to get us there. Plots in the end are all based on me. And while this has the good feeling, the happy feeling of the illusion of control, This way of living has so much pressure because it is all up to me to create and execute the plans on my own. Living a life according to the promises of God always, this is the second to be, always requires the help of God. This text, the way God did this was on a string and a prayer. Paul is going to be murdered by these men This plot is a good one. It makes sense. And this plot very likely would have gone through except for Paul's sister's son. We didn't even know Paul had a sister. There's zero mention in the New Testament. Like, who? Paul's sister's son finds out about this plot. Then all of the the, the promise of God, of, of God preserving Paul and getting him to Jerusalem is in the hands of, of, of his nephew. And his nephew is allowed into the barracks. We don't know if that was a hard thing or not to be allowed into the barracks. And eventually tells Paul. Then Paul, now the information is in Paul's hand. Paul's own life is in his hand. And he turns to a centurion. He turns to a soldier and says, Hey, please take this boy and take him to the commander. With the awesome name. Um, Take him to the commander. and, And now the whole story is in this soldier's hands right? This soldier has the opportunity to say, you're a prisoner. You know, I I don't need to listen to you. Lifeguards don't usually like listening to the person who causes all the horseplay, right? Like he, this is the soldier is most likely to blow him off. But he's like, all right, I'll do it. It's in the soldier's hands. Then it takes from the soldier's hand, then it goes to the commander's hands, another person who could eliminate it. Eventually this would go to Felix's hands. We're going to see in chapters ahead that this, before he gets to Paul, Paul's going to go through Festus' hands and Agrippa's hands and the hands of the angry sea. 
But see, the promises of God that means for Paul that, oh, he's in his nephew's hands, centurion's plans, commander's hands, Festus, Felix, Agrippa, God's promises never leave God's hands. That God is the one who sustains and keeps his promises. Paul's life was always in the hands of God. Living by the promises of God means we are always needing his help. Perhaps the greatest question to ask ourselves of are we truly living a life trusting in the plans and promises of God is to ask this simply, do I really need his help? Is how he has asked me, or how I've set up my life have room for his help? We are more than servants of the king. We depend on the help of the king. Major Ian Thomas says, God will never lead us to independence. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I want independence in everything. I want to be financially independent. I want to be like have everything set up in my life with my kids, with my relationships, in my world so that it is kind of a fortress. So it's independent of anything else that can happen. God will not lead us into a place where we have enough control and strength on our own to carry out our lives well. This is what is delightful and difficult about trusting him. Third, plots of men. The plots rely on, the, on passion and force of the will. Imagine being one of these 40 dudes, right? These 40 guys. What are they risking? Their lives. What are they risking? Imprisonment. What they're doing is a Roman crime. What they're going to do to Paul could, if they are caught, put them in prison or put them be put to death because of what they are going to do. They are passionate about this. They believe in this. They believe this is the right thing to do before God. I really believe that they have a they are fully passionate and fully wrong. Proverbs 19:2 says it is not good to have zeal without knowledge or to be hasty and miss the way. Passion and I, I think we we rightly say, right? We want to be passionate for God, and passion has a place in the person's life. It has a place to, to, to motivate us to, to seek Him. But I think that what can happen is we can become dependent on those feelings of passion in a way that um, doesn't last. A life based on passion must be the icing, not the cupcake. A life based on passion is two great weaknesses. Number one, it's flashy. And by what I mean by that one is that it's exciting. Anyone who has been on fire for God, you know it is an exciting feeling to, to, be, to be really sold out to one thing, to be giving your life to God alone. There's, there's a simplicity, there's an excitement, there's a beauty that comes with, with living passionately. The hard thing also is it's often temporary. People who, whose goal is to live on fire for God don't know what to do when it rains. Because the part of walking towards Jesus is just putting the next brick on the wall. It is just the daily obedience. 
A life based on passion can be flashy. It can be fully passionate, but still lose its strength. Secondly, it's powerful. Uh, Power is not an evil thing. But whenever we are around power, we must be very careful. What else is powerful? Anger. Anger makes me feel powerful, right? Who wants to take a nap when they're angry? Nobody. Why? Because they're strong. Strong. It's a strong feeling. Passion is a strong feeling. No one can stop us. And passion can rely and feed, even in Christian circles, it can feed the ego and it can lead to a mob mentality. Passion, while being a great thing, cannot be the source of our faith. It is not how we make disciples. Um, 3B, how we, required, how we live in trust is simply, we require, promises of God require daily pr- trust. It can feel as we're in the book of Acts like this is a nonstop Paul passion ministry ride. Paul's derailed all the time in this book. He's two years in Corinth. He's, he's, a, he's a year here. He's stuck there. Right now what's going to happen, he's going to go to Caesarea and he's basically going to sit in a jail cell or in Herod's praetorium for two years. No Bible books are written in those two years. And then, then eventually he's going to go, it's going to be five years before he even gets to Rome to fulfill the promise that we have here. There's long periods of emptiness in Paul's life where he doesn't just have the highlight reel and the Hillsong track in the background, but what he has is the daily faithfulness. A life of the Christian includes dark seasons, confusing times, and passionless obedience. We need more than a passion for God. We need faithfulness that outlives when the good feelings of passion go away. Eugene Peterson writes a book, Long Obedience in the Right Direction. He says this, There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what early generations of Christians called holiness. Fourth, living according to the plans of God, or the plots of men. Plots are often foiled. Plots often go awry. In the text, this, this well-intended but evil plot does not go through. It does not go. So what happens to these people? Do they starve to death? Die of thirst? And some people have looked at that and said, yes, they made this oath. They took it to the elders and chief priests who would bind them by this oath. And so they would have died not being able to fulfill it. There are four different oaths that they could be released from. This appears to be within one of the four oaths that the chief priests could release these people from their carrying out. So I don't think they died. I think they were ultimately released, but their plans, no matter what, were foiled. And man, do we hate it when things go bad, when things go different than we imagined them. It's not a fun thing to look back on the New Year's resolution list and say, oh, wow, those 20 pounds are still here. You know, <laughs> it's, it's hard to have plans go the wrong direction. But the promises of God, and I love this in the text, the promises with God come with backup. Right? Look what it says in the text. This promise of God that's on a wing and a prayer, that's like held by a thread through the centurion and through all of the different leaders that that Paul will go through before he gets to Rome for this promise to be fulfilled. This This is how he carried it out. 
Then he called two centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea in the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts, this would be more than one, multiple horses for Saul to ride to bring him safely to Felix, the governor. The guy's like, all right, you want to play with 40? I'm sending 470 to guard this man. This is a battalion, a, a, a giant amount of army. There would even be less security in Jerusalem because of all of the people that are being commissioned to go with Paul. But God made a promise to Paul, and God's promises come with God's backup. When God promises something, God delivers it's, it's a pretty bold thing to, to have things in Scripture like that say that God always keeps His promises because it only takes one broken promise to one person for that not to be true. Scripture teaches, your life teaches, God keeps His promises. It is so easy to see the angry mob. It is so easy to see the overwhelming odds and something that's interesting, I, we sang this earlier, we don't face Goliath, but we face our own giants. I love that. Because like, I'm not a giant, and I can't defeat a giant. A giant's bigger than me, right? Gene told me this morning, I don't know what Gene is, Gene told me this morning, he says, you're shorter than I thought. <laughs> and I thought, you know, like, I, I, I can't defeat a giant. That's a good thing. But God's promises come with backup. It is okay if we live a life that is bigger than ourselves as long as we live it according to his promises because when God promises, he comes through. Proverbs 19.21, again. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. Just some quick practical things four practical things of, of living out this trust, living out this trust in a daily sense. One, use broken plans as a divine diving board into the goodness of God. When your plans are foiled, because guess what? We're going to make human plans. We're going to do it again of like, oh, I set up my life again with, without needing the help of God. But when those plans are foiled, let that be a moment to say, I have a chance to transition from plots to promises. Use it as a diving board into the goodness of God. Secondly, always be mindful and in increasing your prayer to worry ratio. The amount of time that our minds are worried about the future, the next thing, for me it's significant. It's just, I'm just good at it. I'm good at worry, right? So to increase, wow, I'm worrying again about myself, about things for myself, about how I could accomplish it, my own strength, to use those times to say, okay, I'm going to increase the prayer time now. What am I going to pray about? I'm going to pray about what I was worrying about. Increase your prayer to worry ratio. Third, when you're tempted to collapse in despair, stand on the promises of God. When you feel like, I just can't do it, I just can't face it, all is lost, the mob is too big, stand on the promises of God. There's a moment where Joshua comes before God and he's on his face, flat before God, which is like, yeah, that's exactly where I'd be before God. And, and God, in this in really powerful moment in the book of Joshua, you know what he says to Joshua? 
Joshua, stand up. Because yes, you need to kneel in, in fidelity. And yes, you need to, to, to be dependent upon me. But when you're in my presence, covered by me, you can stand in strength on the promises of God. Lastly, spend time listening so that God can promise you something specifically. I believe if we truly believe in what the Bible teaches, that we have a God who truly speaks to his people. I don't believe, I, do I believe that, that we're still writing books of the Bible? I don't. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit specifically speaks promises to his people? I do. I don't, I don't see how you cannot when you look at the pages of Scripture. God speaks. And, and I know for some in here, it's like, well, what, is he, what is that like? Well, it does take time to know him. It takes time to recognize his voice. But if you spend time listening and seeking him, seek the Lord, what does it say in the book of Jeremiah? You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God does speak, but that does mean we need to listen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your guiding hand, your continual promises, the way that you have uh, looked out for us. Lord, this is a sea of people in Collingswood, in Prayer Garden, and in this gym that has, has seen the promises of God come through time and time again. We worship you for that. We even take this time to sing to you in light of that. We give you ourselves. We ask you that you would gently dismantle a lot of the plots that we have going and you might help us to know how to daily walk in trust and courage to follow you in the name of Jesus we pray amen we have here in Mount Laurel uh, people up here that you could come and pray with as we sing Maybe as you're heading into this fall, you've analyzed and reanalyzed your goals of how to get to where you're going. Might be optimistic, but you realize you're running on your own strength towards your own goals and have not laid them down before the king. Or maybe you're here and you've worried, you've logged your time in the worry machine. You're wringing your hands at all the things that could go wrong and you look and you see an angry mob in front of you and you're here this morning saying, I don't want to leave this building because I know what I have to drive to. I know what I have to face Monday. And what you're facing seems bigger than you are. Maybe you've spent your time in the house of despair and collapse, counting all that is potentially ahead of you for each of us and these prayer partners are here to just help you cry out Lord help me these things are too big for me I have no idea how I'm going to face this relationship financial burden spiritual confusion mental health difficulty I don't know any more than Paul knew about how in the world he gets to Rome I need you and I need your promises won't you stand with us and sing and you're welcome to make use of the prayer team up here as well.